This is Classical Reboot, progressive talks on Western classical music. We're just talking mostly about the American scene because it's it's where it really starts. Um, Europe does have a scene for minimalism. It comes a little bit later, yeah. and it's a slightly different idea as well. It comes almost more out of a more notated tradition than what exists in the U.S. that was started with uh, Lamont Young, who is pretty much the yeah one of the established fathers and founders if you will of minimalism Mm -hmm. and he interestingly worked with drones he worked with a lot more drone sounds than what we'll see a little bit later a lot of composers later moved towards more rhythmic minimalism mimicking um other non-western uh music traditions but lamont young in uh, 19 58 wrote a piece called trio for strings this piece was a very long piece and it ended up utilizing mostly drones of very consonant intervals a perfect fifth or a perfect fourth held for very long amounts of time Mm -hmm. and it formed the basis for lamont young as a composer to explore a world where You have so much um, stasis where nothing moves that you start to, as a listener, you get into a different mindset and you enter a different environment than one where you have a moving melody and harmony and these things moving either horizontally or vertically, however you want to think about it. Some people think of harmony more vertically or long form, but... With Lamont Young, you have this idea that starts to germinate of stasis in music and a lack of change leading to more intrigue rather than less intrigue, which is kind of the antithesis to some of the European, like Boulez, like highly notated scores yeah i so a couple things i wanted to maybe um extract out of that with uh, specifically about lamont young is this idea not this idea but his use of drones and how that actually i i don't know if you want to get into it now the the bridge between minimalism and into experimentalism but we we start to see there is always there's always a large experimental scene in the united states but we began to see this a lot with Lamont Young specifically, he started out as a minimalist composer and then moved more towards the experimental scene. Uh, he got very interested in just intonation and different tuning systems. Uh, and that's uh, where we, uh, we see a lot of people like Harry Parch, um, Ben Johnston. Uh, they out on the West Coast um, began to uh, uh, implement a lot of these things. And so Lamont Young removed himself, began to remove himself, I guess, from this minimalist philosophy. And in a way, became like much more focused on the intonation aspect of it. And I, I think that's probably... Um, very related to his interest in world music and different tuning systems throughout the world and how he, yeah. Specifically, that's his uh, Hindustani influence, He, mm-hmm. which is uh, Northern Indian classical music 
if you will. That's usually how it's described when in a Western setting. It's he figure he learned all of these uh, talas and ragas, which are um, rhythmic. And talas are the rhythmic structures, if I'm not mistaken, and ragas are the scalar structures. I might have those two mixed up. Someone will correct me later if I'm wrong. You have a drone in Hindustani music, and then you have this scale that's going on on top of it, but there are microtonalities in Hindustani music that don't exist in the Western classical tradition. Right. And so he liked to use those and experiment with them, and that led him down a whole path with uh, things outside of minimalism. Right. But kind of going back to that experimentalist side of him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Got in with da- with uh, David Tudor and John yep. Cage and went to Darmstadt yep. in 1959. And then he kind of he 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 wrote stuff around that time. And then he really got into minimalism and he was writing some very experimental things. Yeah, uh, he wrote a piece. He wrote compositions in 1960 that's very Cagean. And from then on, you see this heavy use of elongated time and drone and uh, minimalist aspects to his music. And then he, you know, like you said, starts to cycle more towards interesting uh, tuning systems. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think minimalism and experimentalism are often, um, or not, keep on choosing the word, the wrong words here. Uh, They, they are very closely related. They, will uh, inevitably influence one another. This is a great transition to talk about um, Steve Reich. Um, no, Reich. 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 We discussed this. <laughs> one of uh, our pre-podcast meetings, we went over this specifically, Austin. Yep. And Get I it together. still fucked it up. Here we are. <laughs> um, <laughs> we can't have anything nice. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a curse of mine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh reich steve reich was uh very much an experimentalist from the beginning with a lot of his electronic and tape music that we we've talked about this in a previous episode um so we won't go into too much detail about that but i think it's a great way to see the evolution in american minimalism going from kind of the opposite of lamont young who was more focused on this minimalist stuff and going into the experimental side. We have Steve Reich who started more with the experimental and the electronic aspect of minimalism or experimentalism and developed that into a minimalist uh, philosophy and scheme. Right. And with, with Reich, you see, Funnily enough, he so he's more of an experimentalist to start out with, like you said, and he ends up focusing more on rhythmic structures than really anybody else mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. since. Yep. Uh, and in a way that Lamont Young didn't. So Reich took it in a different way. And like you said, he started out as an experimentalist because he meant to just he was meant to just be doing some tape work. Yep. And he found he recorded uh, for It's Gonna Rain, which is kind of his first really Reich's first work that people talk about as kind of a seminal type achievement in his career. Right. And he he just puts these two tapes on 
And he's, he puts them on, and it's the same tape. And he noticed that after a while, they just started to right. get slightly out of sync with each other. Right, right. And he wasn't trying to be a minimalist with it. He wasn't going for this minimalist aesthetic. No. But he did end up, through just his experimentation, he created this thing. And then that's where Steve Reich started to find out f- how you could phase things in and out of right. uh, Do you sync kn- with each other. Yeah. Do you know his work pendulum music? I actually forgot to bring this up previously. I I don't I haven't listened to it. I've read about it because I'm reading a book yeah. by a writings Steve Reich right now. So. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, again more one of his more experimental pieces where you you're pendulating a microphone over a speaker and it's the feedback that's the sound you're hearing. Um, yeah, that's. And I, I forgot about that, actually. And now thinking about it, that's also a great uh, bridge or transition or great example to see um, where Reich got, you know, go going from an experimentalist um, mindset into a more minimalist mindset. It's it's funny to. I think a lot of when I when I'm when I've been reading about these minimalist composers, I've actually been kind of transitioning from like a more experimental aesthetic to a more minimalist aesthetic. I'm actually often reminded of a lot of the uh, like abstract expressionist uh, artists of the early 20th century, like Pollock, who is like very like formal in a lot of his early paintings. And like you see some of his earlier works and it's like there's figures and you can see shapes and stuff. And then you obviously get into his later works and it's the, um, the splatter works that, which are, have little no little to any shape or form so um but you you see how the the two influence one another very much so still and that's i, I and i this that might just be a very general like um banal point to make about art in general and the evolution of it however i think that i don't know i was just i just kept being reminded of the the you know yeah that yeah yeah and i think that's that's a really good point about like Pollock moving in that direction. Also, you see uh, Reich not uh, he, he matures in a certain way because he starts to think more about instrumentalists being able to perform and having musicians perform his works rather than these tape okay. things or this pendulum music. Yeah, you know that yeah. where he he can do that, but it's not really a he he didn't. He's not cagey enough in his idea of what constitutes a performance. Yeah, he Reich wants there to be musicians on stage doing a doing an action and interacting and doing something. How much of and, that do you think was influenced by his um, African drumming or like studying Western African drumming in Ghana? Uh, that that does come into it. So there's there's a yeah. slight there's like two changes with Reich. Okay. I, th- I think like there's the there's the transition from trying to do the same thing, the the same phasing yeah. that he did with tapes with people. And that's yeah. where you get piano phase. Piano yeah. phase is the like, how did I, how could I do this exact same thing with people? Yeah. And that worked and it, it kind of clicked, but it, it, it really is like what you just mentioned is him going to Ghana and studying uh, Western African drumming yeah. that produced his piece drumming. Yep. very neatly titled work <laughs> and it's where he started to get the there was uh there are these very simple patterns for for anyone who's studied uh western african drumming there are very simple patterns that 
everybody who's not the master drummer does. Mm. And then the master drummer has more complex patterns that they have. Mm. And then those complex patterns will signal something else or they'll verbally call out a change in a pattern. Okay. And this is where Reich started to get into the idea of like an elongated rhythmic structure where you can lose yourself as a musician in you. He, he talks about taking all there's no improvisation in his works mm-hmm. because he doesn't he he wants the musician to be able to know exactly what they're doing yeah. and do that and just have this structure that comes out and in that sense of having no control you have ultimate freedom yeah. which is a slightly more esoteric philosophical thing but right that's what he was going for and it's really interesting to see it evolve throughout his career and all of it's born out of experimentation it's right. not he was never going yeah. for minimalism. Sure. Yeah. So at the risk of labeling things, but we're going to do that, we have Lamont Young's uh, minimalism, which is much more drone influence and not as rhythmically driven. Uh, and in that regard, it's it's very repetitive from a harmonic standpoint. It's, you know, same tones for long periods of time for the listener to you know, zone out on in in a way. And then you have the Steve Reich approach, which is more of a rhythmic trance that the listener falls into and has uh, these rhythmic patterns that um, we begin to see him play with displacing them by just a beat. Uh, His piece clapping music is a great example of that, where you have a very relatively simple, uh, what I think it's just one bar of 12 eight uh, pattern uh, that the first performer does it and then repeats. And then the third time around the uh, second performer comes in and they do the same pattern, but they do it offset by one eighth note. So then you have this. Um, and then I think that there's eight performers in total. Uh, so you have eight performers that are doing this uh, pattern <laughs> that is offset by an eighth note by the end and it's very um it sounds great uh when it's all it's great counterpoint it's great rhythmic counterpoint um, i think is a great way to put it all these lines locking into each other and eventually they all phase back into the same uh pattern at once and that's it's actually an incredible thing to do um with a group of friends if you're if you're feeling it (laughs) um if you are if you are curious it's actually It's it's uh, you can find the sheet music anywhere. You can even look it up on YouTube or whatever, and it's there. Um, and so that's that's like um, I don't I don't want to say that like that's the pinnacle of like his rhythmic uh, minimalism, but it's I, de- it's yeah. It I I think like rhythmically speaking, yes. He gets into the his his like last like I think like. For me, like the the last thing that really is specific to what we are talking about, and like the the minimalism concept as it was originated and how it was mm-hmm. established, the last thing that I think we can talk about in Steve Reich's works is music for eighteen musicians. Yes, yep. where and it's it's just as rhythmically important, um, but he actually uses chords and chord structures. Mm-hmm to create a melody but Mm -hmm. then what he does is he takes that melody and he keeps it the same 
throughout the entire piece, which is I think about 50, 55 minutes in total. Yeah, it's a lot. If you perform all of it as written. And he, uh, what he does is he changes the melody by changing the rhythm, not by changing the notes or the chords or the inversions. He just changes his rhythms. Yeah. And he does all that Reich trickery that he's able to do. And it's, it's a really interesting piece because of that. And he got that out of a combination of Balinese gamelan and West African drumming, which involves yeah. more. You have this large group of people playing basic patterns, and then you have one person signaling mm-hmm. the the change in patterns or the change in something. But everyone knows what they're supposed to do, and they don't do anything else. Right. So it's it's this really, and he, he that's where he started to expand it, and it's where you start to see. Maybe less. Uh, it's still minimalist, but it's a large ensemble minimalist work, right. which is an interesting. It's one of those early conceptual things that kind of is a little disjointed with minimalism, and you start to see maybe a little more break off into other things. But it's a. I think that's the the last like work that you talk about with Steve Reich as far as minimalism. Right. Right. So we have a lot of other artists, or a few other artists. Uh, that are related to Steve Reich. And we probably actually should have, from a chronological standpoint, brought up Terry Riley before we talked about Steve Reich, um, just because he was slightly before. But they they happened. Very contemporary. Yeah, yeah. They they worked together with a, on a lot of stuff. So I'm, you know, it whatever. <laughs> um, but, and there's, there's like, I've read so many things in textbooks or... Um, readings on mid 20th century music claiming that in C is the by Terry Riley is the first minimalist, true minimalist work. Um, And like, I, I I get why they say that because it, um, I I think what they say that because it has these elements of like improvisation or um, um, choice. Choice. Yeah. There's, there are these, um, aleatoric um, moments in the work, or the whole uh, piece is actually relatively aleatoric. If, you, if you're not familiar with the piece, it's a pretty large cornerstone work of Terry Riley's. Um, the, each performer is given um, these cells of notes, and you uh, basically, as a performer, you repeat them, um, with a bunch of other people. So you're all playing the same stuff until one person decides to move on to the next cell. And then the other people can either stay behind or join you. And it's all a lot about communication. And then by the end, um, you're either all doing the same thing and you die out um, one by one. And a rough, and then the sketch of the piece or the performance, pro, um, performance notes, he indicates players are not to fall behind too much or get too far ahead. They there to like communicate and it basically i think he says something like the piece can last anywhere from <laughs> he, he suggests like 20 minutes to two hours like he gives like a yeah. really wide window and like time that this piece can uh happen which and i think is you know great because there you know there really wasn't anything like this previously um where the performers had as much autonomy to uh, like indicate how long they want the work to be it's also um supposed to be for like 30 or more performers i've performed it a couple times never with that many 
But I will say when I performed it, I think the most people I performed it with is close to like 20 or so. It's so much easier when you do that because he actually encourages players to like take breaks and not play the whole time and just listen to what's going on. And as a performer, that's <laughs> it's it's really nice because you get to just like take a break and like listen and like you know where everybody is and like you but and you might not have like heard someone else across the stage playing some passage and uh it, yeah it's it's a wonderful experience and i we i mentioned earlier how riley and reich were uh closely related um in the uh per, i guess the rehearsals of this piece or the inception of this piece um steve reich was involved uh, Pauline Olivieros was involved. Uh, Morton Sabotnik was involved. I know who else? I'm, I know I'm missing a couple other heavy hitting names. Um, but those are those are the three that I um, um, can think of off the top of my head. But it was actually Steve Reich that suggested uh, that throughout the piece, someone keep a steady pulse on octave C's on the piano, just to you know basically act as a metronome. Mm -hmm. And it's honestly like that. I can't even imagine trying to perform that piece without just a steady um, uh, pulse going on the whole time. Cause that's what it really allows you to um, either offset yourself with another player or lock in with another player. And it's just a point of reference that everyone has. And without that, my God, <laughs> it, it does fall apart if you don't have that. Yep. Yep. And one of the interesting things is that, I think what was really important about like the Terry Re or Terry Riley, Steve Reich, and Lamont Young is that all three of them knew each other and worked with each other mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Um, Lamont Young branched off fairly quickly from the other two, but yeah. Steve Reich and Terry Riley were very much so in in yeah. the same scene. Well, I mean, same scene. They they eventually ended up on different coasts, but right. they. They knew each other, knew each other's works, collaborated a lot, performed together. There's a lot of crossover between the two, and that's. Uh, I think it's it's important to mention that the the beginning of minimalism is this really small group of people doing experimental things, and those grew, and you have a couple people who have their styles come out and you know define the. Uh, genre, if you will, the, yeah, yeah, the, the, the style, the subject, the, yeah, yeah, the style, style. The, the aesthetic, and, the philosophy. Like, I think that's, right. I, I think that you, you pointed this out earlier, but the, a large thing is these people aren't, a lot of these innovators of this aesthetic aren't necessarily trying. They, they didn't have this epiphany, or maybe they did, but like, I, I can't imagine they had this like epiphany of like, ah, oh, this is what I want. This is what my music needs to be, or this is what I want my music to be. It, I, I believe that it was through experimentation and process that they eventually came to this conclusion of what their music is, what it what it eventually became. Yeah, I think if they had any epiphany, I think their epiphany was less musical and more philosophical. Yeah, for yeah. all of them, where they, particularly in Lamont Young's case, his, his he really took a deep dive into a whole lot of philosophical and religious ideas that mm -hmm. um supported his experimentation with minimalism and drone music basically right. yeah and that's where he 
that's where, again, he starts to step away from the others. And like what you said about improvisation with Terry Riley mm-hmm. is that Terry Riley and Lamont Young were in favor of improvisation or at least some variance of choice yeah, yeah. for the performer. Mm-hmm. Whereas Steve Reich do- doesn't want that. And it's it. Th- there are two kind of differing ideas there, but they, yeah. they ultimately are part of the same right. minimalism. And and Steve Reich is slightly more calculated. I think he kind of got the um, the aleatoric bug out of him when he worked a lot with tapes and kind of had that experience just happen inevitably with the technology he was using. He's probably like, yeah, this is cool, but I could also notate this and have a more calculated idea of what the outcome's going to be. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think it's just a it's it's a preference difference between the two, yeah. a slight philosophical difference, but really they they're both composing the same type of music. It's just one has a slightly different idea about it. Also, and it's yeah, yep. And if you're not aware, and uh, if you look up a picture of Terry Riley, he's literally a wizard. <laughs> Dude, look up a picture of Lamont Young. Seriously. Oh, same. Yeah, same. I, like that, all that the... guy is that guy is a hippie. All those. If, you, if yeah. you think of somebody who grew up <laughs> around like the Bay Area, did a yeah shitload of drugs <laughs> and like went off in the woods for a while and came back and was like, "See, I'm writing music about atmosphere, and I'm like his compositions has a piece where you literally release a, the instruction for the piece is to release a butterfly into a." <laughs> concert hall and then the piece lasts as long as it takes for the butterfly to find its way out of the concert hall oh my god i i i both i simultaneously hate that and love it (laughs) it's one of those things that you look back at you're like this is oh god i love him for it but (laughs) i i can see where an audience might have been upset <laughs> if I was there for the premiere of it, I'd be totally there, totally in for he, he it. He has another one, my personal favorite one, <laughs> where you're supposed to go out and feed and y- you feed the piano. Oh, so like I've heard of this. I've heard of this. Out yeah. there and, yeah. you, and you give it a, and the piece either the piece ends uh, either when the piano doesn't eat or. If the piano eats, then the performer can decide when the piece ends. And the, it ends when the piano stops eating. And you're like, this is the most weird thing. And it's so cagey and, and out there. And Lamont yeah. Young is great and crazy and wonderful. <laughs> That's incredible. So I I I wanna I do wanna mention um Paulina Livieros. Um if nothing more than to just say she's awesome and has done so much stuff for the advocate. Like she just advocated a lot for new music and new ways of listening and meditation and just being a better person in general. But her large thing, her large philosophy that a lot of uh, late 20th century minimalists adopted is this idea of deep listening or so she coined it. And it's, it's exactly what it is is just it's basically a form of meditation where you try and um focus on you know you sit down in a room and you focus on just one sound and really focus on it and try and pick apart all these things and it's actually quite 
it's crazy. I, I remember the first time I did it, I focused on the whatever, I, I, probably the compressor or something for the fridge, whatever sound the fridge makes. And I started, I legitimately started to hear the different like overtones and like the different harmonies that um, the sounds that a fridge makes. And like, you don't, you don't think of these things. And like, again, you could relate this to, you know, John Cage, but I think that Paulina Oliveros really brings it to that deeper level of, it's more about the individual experiencing this than this more macro uh, idea that Cage is Im imposing where hers is more on a micro scale and maybe, I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think there is a, there is an important difference between like minimalism and what Cajun chance compositions are because Cage's chance stuff and kind of what he does later in his career that made him so famous is less to do with the kind of that deep listening aspect I think that uh, Oliveros talks about where it's that is so central to the idea of minimalism where you have deep listening on these sounds that are I, I think given to you by a performer or a composer like in, uh -huh. a, in, a, in a setting where the piece lasts for 50 minutes mm -hmm. something like that mm -hmm. and Cage is more concerned with telling you that every sound is music which is not not what Oliveros is saying she, right. I think she's saying that same thing but she's saying like listen to it more she she's saying more, it in a different there's, way there's, or there's more intent listen to it with intent yes it's yeah, there's more intent it, it's, it's this... not purely the experiential part of it like right. just the like I'm here in this moment and everything that happened in these four minutes and 33 seconds is the concert or the music. Right. It's the idea that it extends beyond that, that like there is this more constant stream of sound and noise and right. things you can hone in on and make music. Um, and her big thing, I was just reminded of this. Um, she's famous for citing the difference between um, hearing and listening where we are we can very passively hear things um i do yep. we all do it all the time every day um but it's hard to passively listen and yes you're, when you're listening to something you typically have an intent behind it and you are focusing on whatever you are listening to and it's again it's a very like basic and elementary concept but it makes sense that it would happen like as a reaction in the late 20th century with like the industrial revolution and just like the literal sound world changing um, so rapidly in such a short period of time. Um, and yeah. 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 And I think, I I, think yeah, um, I, I was just saying, I, you know, she was, I want to say she was born in the forties or something of that capacity. Um, Check that real quick. 1932, and then she born in 2016. Yeah, so she, her, her sound world, I could only imagine, you know, anybody that's, I even think of my own, you know, grandma who's, you know, lived roughly for about that same period. Just the, the, the sound world that you've lived in has shifted so drastically from when you were born to, you know, now. 
And I think there's there's also an interesting cultural shift that happens as well that that also coincides with the idea of deep listening. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't, you, you know, there it it it's a tired concept, but it's a consumerist culture that we live in in the United States. And guess what? We're busy, 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 going all over the place, doing all kinds of superficial things. Yeah. Social media hasn't really changed that. I'm not here to beat a dead horse and be a boomer about shit, but. <laughs> It, you, you know, it, it's yeah. very different than it was pre-World War II. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our culture is very different, and deep listening is, and minimalism aren't necessarily railing against that culture, but they are trying to yeah. discuss it in a certain way and make you listen and do something in a different way than you would normally. Yeah. Because a lot of these things are coming out in the, a lot of the pieces we're talking about are mid sixties to mid seventies. Yeah. And the musical revolution in that time period is very well documented. And v- like the pop music scene is just exploding oh, and yeah. popularity of music and recordings and mm-hmm. all of these types of things are completely changing the way people consume mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, it's just a, it's a discussion about some of that. Right. And so uh, Pauline Oliveros uh, focused a lot of her stuff on that idea of deep listening. A lot of her music, with that being said, is electronic, which to me makes sense because she would sample a lot of sounds and a lot of very specific sounds and then find ways to work with it. So that, you know, that checks out. And um, again, wonderful advocate for new music and general well-being and meditation. Um, I, I I wish, like, she, she passed away in 2016. I, you know, what I would, I would have loved to have at least, see, like, seen her talk or give, like, a master class or something in my lifetime. But unfortunately, unfortunately not, not possible <laughs> currently, so... Um, so I think the last set of individuals we kind of want to touch on is here I go putting labels on things again. Um, the more I guess commercial uh, minimalists um, of the twentieth century. They, yeah, I, I I'm I'm gonna back you up on that and like double down on it actually because <laughs> Philip Class is who one of the people you want to yeah. bring up and he is perhaps the most commercially successful composer yeah. It, it, yeah. at yeah. least in the last hundred years maybe right. i mean like right you know i'm not gonna like throw mozart in there because like right once your music becomes free domain anybody can play it so right. you're not commercially successful anymore right so <sighs> what we're talking about with philip glass is and other composers we're gonna or at least one other composer we're gonna bring up down the line here is they took this idea of minimalism and they brought it to a large scale orchestra and they brought it to large scale like grand opera. So what we're talking about with Philip Glass is like Einstein on the Beach is a famous opera of his. Akhenaten is a famous opera of his. The Met was actually doing a production of Akhenaten um, right before COVID hit. Um, and honestly, and I'm, this isn't even an exaggeration, a lot of modern film score can be related back to Philip Glass and his use of uh, repetitive strings and uh, rhythmic and um, just simple melodic gestures that aren't, you know, particularly interesting, but you throw them in the background of a movie score with a landscape of, you know, Western United States and 
There you go. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he he is one of the more influential. I, I think he has to be one of the more influential just composers, but especially film composers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he is up there with like John Williams is probably the other one where it's like, right. yeah, you 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 did a lot of stuff that has just influenced how like a blockbuster movie right. is going to be portrayed. It's it's the same thing with Philip Glass. I'm not sure he has quite the influence on the three hundred million dollar movie, but he does have quite a bit of influence in any movie really yeah like I, lot, I think yeah he's got a broad reach on that it's interesting a lot of indie films i see the the soundtrack tends to be more um philip glass influence and you know what though like i i doubt the composer's thinking that necessarily but no. it's, but it's just the it's the flavor like that's what it is yeah. and this well, and it's, I, it's always a way to set especially when you talk about a an indie movie or a movie with a lower budget where they're trying to set themselves apart from somebody else or do something. They are, you know, if, if they're working with the director, the composer is working with the director who is saying, you know, I want to have these really wide open shots and these kind of, you know, small figures and these massive shots or these real close in things like think, uh, Sergio Leone and Ennio Morricone mm-hmm. who, Ennio Morricone recently died, but oh. I mean, it, some of his uh, film scores are incredibly minimal. Like he did Once Upon a Time in the West is a three-hour movie. Yeah, with I swear barely any music in it half the time, <laughs> or it's just like these little things. And it, it talk about another extremely influential film composer. Yeah, yeah. And it, I think it's the same thing. You're seeing influence in those things because those directors are influenced by people who watched right. those movies and stole those movies. Right. Those ideas, those shot ideas, those you know things. Yeah. You're stealing from the same people who were so good at making those sound good, and that's yeah. Philip Glass and then Neil Morricone, and it's this. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a art. You steal it and you do it. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's... you don't know it all the time. Like you right. don't know that you're plucking this idea from Philip Glass and his. 1970 whatever movie of something that we neither of us have seen the amount of times i've subconsciously stolen things is absolutely absurd actually where i'll write something i'll put it in a piece i'll hear it and then like somewhere down the line i'll hear like something else that i've definitely heard before like oh that's where i definitely got that idea from (laughs) i'm not that original yeah no nobody is <laughs> maybe they are you know maybe that maybe the best of the best are but i know i am can be guilty of uh that um i'll never i'll never tell my secrets though <laughs> a little uh, bit of bad for caroline shaw being original but then there's probably someone who's gonna be like yeah but she's got this huge heavy influence from like stravinsky or something i'm like i i hear it but like i don't want to <laughs> <laughs> We um, so the other composer that um, is worth mentioning here, who is is maybe slightly less commercial, but definitely was on the uh, stage of the orchestra more, uh, and was minimalist was uh, John Adams, not John Luther Adams. There is a difference. Um, John Adams. That I constantly forget. Yep. <laughs> uh, John Luther Adams is also a wonderful, great composer, um, but John Adams was. Or is he still alive? He's still alive. Um, present tense, Austin. Present, present tense. tense. He's, he's not. He's not dead yet. Um, <laughs> I, sh- I shouldn't. Yet. Say, shouldn't say that. <laughs> COVID. He, yeah. Eesh. Eesh. It's a little too soon there, bud. 
Um, he had uh, his most famous work probably being um, Nixon in China, and that piece even made another. It was there's a famous orchestra piece called Chairman Dances, uh, which was actually a cut from that uh, uh, opera, which I think is hilarious to think that that was a cut from an opera and the fact that it can just be a standalone piece. Um, I actually haven't done enough research to like know if it, he just literally, you know, cut it out and that was the piece or if he cut out a section and developed it more. I hope it's the latter of those two. Cause otherwise that would be a really unnecessary, like 10 minutes of just like, instrumental music in an opera which like sure if there's things going on on stage maybe but also it's it's john adams so like who knows right it it could have happened also the kind of the thing that i want to touch on with the two of them yeah is that this is where you see you know we we talked about reich's music for 18 musicians but now you're seeing minimalism enter much more the concert hall, the right. symphonic, the operatic. Right. And that's the interesting thing that that kind of, I think, brings a close to what we were talking about with minimalism is yeah. the two of them really bringing it to that elevated stage of sure. we're going to have 90 musicians doing this or, you know, 90, you know, this huge group ensemble. Right. Doing right. minimalist music, which is very counterintuitive to the very idea of minimalist music because like philip uh glass has the piece one plus one which is kind of his yeah. first thing and that's like he, he you have one person a tabletop and you have two rhythmic structures that you play one with each hand and you mm-hmm. your your instruction is the performers just to combine them any way you would like yeah and you can't get much more minimalist than sure. here are two rhythms and you have two hands and you play them and you do whatever you want with it. <laughs> um, that's, you know, it's pretty basic, but then, you know, that expands further and further. And he, he takes this idea to kind of the, the next, I, I think the next logical step to yeah. be taking the concept. Yeah. I mean, it was maybe inevitable that absolutely once, once minimalism became an established aesthetic and accepted amongst, um, you know, in audience. And as far as like classical music goes, it was, I would say a lot more palatable than previous, um, new music. Um, like it's much more palatable than the serialists of the, of the forties and fifties and, uh, and the experimentalists before that, um, who were truly like pushing limits of, uh, of the art and seeing what it, you know, what it can do. Um, pushing limits of like definitions really right right what you a lot of that experimentalist stuff really is like what can you know you you have this idea of music how can we yeah expand that and i think that's a lot of or you know the serialist stuff you have this idea of tonality right we're gonna get rid of that basically and right yeah right yeah so bringing it to the large stage the grand opera the the orchestra concert hall was was kind of inevitable and like i don't know i'm not i'm not mad about it i when i referred to them as commercial artists earlier it's not necessarily to say that i think they sold out or that their art is lacking integrity i i just am using that as it was a commercial success and that people it 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 was it actually received money you know yeah (laughs) it was 
them being commercial successes is really the kind of the culmination of minimalism being accepted as a style and a form of composition and music. And right. it's, it's this thing that you get them accepted and it, I, yeah, like, like you said, it's not that the commercial success is a bad thing. It's none of that. It's just that these are the two that really yep. took off. And that's where you see, I think why we have to have this little, episode discussion about what minimalism is and where it came from and how it came to be because it's so pervasive in modern music yeah yeah because those two were so successful and so good at it right and they also did things i think they both kind of slightly moved into more things that might not really be considered minimalism of kind of that 1960 to right you know mid 70s or late 70s yeah because time period yeah philip glass had a, a new symphony premiered uh, two three years back or something like that i think it's his fourth symphony i remember hearing it and i'm like man this is a this is a pop song <laughs> it's it's <laughs> a it's a four chord progression and obviously he's very well orchestrated and it sounds lovely but i just remember thinking like this is like again i'm not surprised and this was just an inevitability of um, specifically like this composer, but like of this, of this aesthetic. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's an interesting, that's an interesting aspect of that as well. And yeah. it's uh, just minimalism is something that continues to be around. And it's not that every composer uses exclusively minimalism or something, but I think it's, it's influenced a lot of composers. Yep. You can definitely run into it in a lot of modern music where you have, minimalist ideas at the mm -hmm. very least being mm -hmm. explored and things like that so it's it's important to understand that it came about in a certain way and it's really an experimentalist kind of background for what it is and it's this idea of elongating a concept to the extreme you know yeah. to really let it it's the deep listening like you said it's yeah. the it's how to get the audience to hook into something that is either so repetitive or so static that it starts to become more and more interesting the more right. you listen to it. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Uh, I think it's a great way to wrap up this session. Um, we'll continue uh, again next week. Uh, join us then. See you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye.